Okay. I, I hear there was confusion. You, some people were under the impression we're supposed to get new sheets for the Tanya to work in the morning. Is that correct? No? Okay. I didn't give you, I didn't give you this exact new sheets because my impression was that you didn't finish the old ones. Okay. Did you finish with the old ones yet? No. Yeah. There's no rush. I'm just um, so okay. Um. Okay. So where we're holding is like this. We learned that there is an oath. The purpose of the oath was to connect two parts of our soul. Which two parts? Remember that. The smiley head and the shoe. The smiley head and the shoe. It's all about the visuals. The smiley head, right, is impervious to influence. It's strong. It's powerful. It can overcome all obstacles. On the other hand, the shoe, the shoe is very um, subject to being influenced. And if, and the only the shoe part, only the foot, only the bottom part of the soul goes into the body. So if our souls were to go into the body without that oath, they'd be subject to the influences of this world and we would not accomplish our mission. Now, what is our mission in life? As is described in uh, the beginning here of chapter one. And remember that. Be righteous. To be righteous. And? Not wicked. And not wicked. And what piece of uh, wisdom are we giving as we enter into this wonderful life? If everybody sees you as righteous, you as wicked. Even if. Very important. So you say if, then you say only those people. Even everybody, and even the people who think that everyone says they're perfectly righteous, they see themselves as wicked. And we have a textual problem because we had a Mishnah we had, that said you shouldn't see yourself as wicked. And we have a psychological problem, which is if you see yourself as wicked, and the wickedness is not something that you can do anything to change. If you have something negative about yourself that you cannot uh, improve, either you become sad or alternatively you just stop caring now since the instruction is even if the whole world tells you that you're righteous you see yourself as wicked we're talking about even a person who has nothing where they can clearly say oh this is this is this is where i'm messing up they're doing everything right if such a person starts to think that nonetheless they're wicked they're a bad person then they think instead of thinking they have a problem they start to think that they are the problem and that's why they have a serious issue. Now, which is worse, to be sad or not to care? Not to, not to care. How do we know? From the text. I see not everyone has a time. If not caring needs to. And what's so bad about irreverence? How do you know irreverence is so bad? It says God forbid. It says God forbid. <laughs> and when it says you won't serve God with joy, it doesn't say God forbid. Okay. That's, that, that's a good argument. Okay. Now, I told you that the answer to this question is really what the whole Tanya is about, but it, it, it can get lost. They say that you don't see the forest for the trees. What is the answer? What is the solution to thinking you have a problem that can never be solved and yet serving God with joy at the same time? I said this at the end of class last week. It's not about solving the problem. It's about working with Hashem. Right. Right. If I see that Hashem, if I see that God is at the end of a journey, 
and I can never get there, then obviously I'm going to feel quite down about things. But on the other hand, my connection with Hashem is found in the moment and not in whether I've solved this big problem of being a wicked person, whatever that means, then the joy is in Hashem being with me as I go along the journey. And yeah, at the same time, I can be, again, you know, I can be honest with myself that there's this irreconcilable, unsolvable problem that I will never be able to solve. And that's okay. In other words, instead of worrying about how successful I am, I should be more concerned about with appreciating the connection that I actually have. Okay? Or to more simply, it's about emphasizing relationship over achievement. Okay, but that's going to come out from reading the whole book. Now let's start getting into it. Okay. Okay. So we are on the little paragraph that says, however the matter... However, the matter will be understood after a preliminary discussion. We find in the Gemara five distinct types. A righteous man who prospers, a righteous man who suffers, a wicked man who prospers, a wicked man who suffers, and an intermediate one, which in Hebrew is known as a Bainani. Okay. So how many types of Jews are there? Five. Five. Okay. Now, It's called these distinct types. Why is it important to know that these are distinct types? And it means a person can't be two of the types? It means a person can't be two of the types. Okay, that's good. Is the difference... Yeah? The qualities of the types don't overlap. That's right. That's right. Many things in life, we might break into categories, but if you really think about it, it's more of a spectrum. Right? So... Black and white, right? But there's also grayscale. There are many differences between people, but those differences run on a spectrum. Right? So has anyone ever ever heard that uh, someone say that I'm an intro- introvert? Yes. Okay, they're lying. I mean, they're not lying. They're just speaking inaccurately. Why? Why? Because introverts and extroverts can come on a scale. You can be more introverted. You can be more, less introverted. It's not like a thing you flip a switch and you are or you're not. Now, if you have somebody who's really, really, really introverted, sitting next to someone who's really, really, really extroverted, it might feel like very distinct types, but you can start lining up people that are a little less introverted, a little less introverted, a little less introverted, and then you start to see it's actually a spectrum. Okay, this is true with many features of people. Many of the things that differentiate between one kind of person and another person, personality types, skills, abilities, if you really look at it, you can always find another person kind of in between and in between so you realize it's not really distinct types. It comes in a range. Yeah. Um, there are bald people. Yes. And there are people who are not bald, right? If someone has no hair, they're bald, right? If someone has a full head of hair, they're not bald. Those two distinct types? Yeah, but what if you add one hair to the bald person? Is he still bald? <laughs> I, mean, I think most of us say he's one hair. <laughs> Two hairs? Yeah. But if you keep doing that, eventually you start getting into like he's balding, and then he's not really bald, and he's not bald at all. So it turns out that if you take the person with no hair and the person with full head of hair, it looks like two distinct categories. But if you take all of the different possibilities of how much hair a man can have on his head, it turns out it's really a spectrum. It's actually a definition. 
definition. What? The actual definition of a bald man is that he doesn't have any hair. No, Otherwise, he's balding. He's not bald. Well, that's depends on if you want to play semantics. When people say so and so is bald, they're not taking. They're not saying. Well, if we find one single hair, it's not the power of doing. We find one single hair, that's not bald anymore. That's, <laughs> that's not how people use the word. Now, ancient philosophers who really like logic want to avoid this problem by using these rigorous, strict definitions of things, but. but that's just not how people use language. Okay. So if we say that there are five distinct types, that means that it's not gradual. There's something that one type has and the other type doesn't have it at all. Or vice versa. Yeah. Can someone think of, before we go into the, you know, the, the righteous person, the wicked person, can someone think of something which would qualify as distinct types that you really can't make it into a spectrum? Yeah. Married and not married. Ma married and not married. Yeah. Especially if you're using the halakh definitions of married and not married, there is no in-between. You either are married or you are not married. And there's some serious ramifications either way. Okay. But that one gives you two categories. Any other things which are distinct categories? I want, you have to speak louder and one person at a time. Your state of being, like the location you are in, well, see, that's where we get tricky because, like, I'm in this room, right? But, like, do I want to be, how specific do I want to be? Do I want to be, like, I'm here? If I do this and I move, if I not move? That becomes very, subject, very subjective that, you know, what we consider to be one location versus two location changes based on kind of what we're interested in. But saying, like, I am in Israel versus I am in America. Okay. Okay. So if you want to, like, like if you wanted to move the borders of countries, you're either in a country or you're not in a country. Fine. But as I said, you have to first define what you mean by the place. Otherwise, you run into this problem. Okay. Your religious belief? That's probably a bad one because <laughs> it's like, I'm an atheist. I'm a devoutly religious person. And then you start unpacking what that means. You know, there's a common ground, and there's middle ground, and there's, there's third views, there's a between views. It, 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 it. But like being Jewish, you're either Jewish or you're okay, not. But that's not religious belief. If I see your religion. Well, so it depends. In, in Judaism, works based on what I guess you could call a citizenship model or tribal affiliation model, which is either you're a member of the tribe, which is kind of like analogous to being a citizen of a country, or you're not. And that's kind of like being married or not. Um, there's different rules for that. But Wahhabi, you do have other religions which are really belief-based, in which case it's, it's much more fuzzy. Okay. So halakhically, according to the Torah, gender is also an absolute. You're either one gender or you're another gender. There's no... There's no Spectrum. I know that nowadays some people think differently, but yeah, from the Torah's point of view, it's pretty clear that way. Okay, so you get an idea. You have different some categories. They're categories, but distinct because as you get more, analyze them more carefully, you start to see there's a spectrum. Okay, well, now, what does the tzaddik have in common? The righteous person have a problem. In common with the wicked person. They both prosper. Some of them. Okay, let's take this issue. The righteous one who prospers with the wicked who doesn't prosper. Let's go with that. The wicked who sucks. What do they have in common? They're both alive. Anything more specific? One soul's rooting the other. So that's something in common. Both by what? Both by one. Just more basic. They're both. They're both Jews. Right. Okay. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is 
dolphins and chimpanzees are distinct categories, right? But the difference between dolphins and chimpanzees is, the, is like, the, like, this is a different thing altogether, right? It's not like we're saying that, that, that you have, we're, we're saying every Jew is fundamentally the same on a certain level, we're all Jews. And then there's another level in which there's these distinct categories, okay? And that's important to realize, because sometimes the distinct categories in terms of the actual substance, the actual essence of what you are. And that's not, clearly not what we're talking about because, you know, we're not talking about different species of creatures. We're all Jews. But some Jews have these characteristics and some Jews have those characteristics. Which means already right now, mentally speaking, how many layers and levels do there have to be to a person, to a Jew? Two. Two. At least. At least, right? The level in which we're all the same and the level in which we have these five distinctions, right? Now, is it clear from the text as right now what's the difference between those two levels of our being? No. Okay, but one of the important things of learning is realizing that when you have something that um, requires you to have more mental categories, so there's a level that, where every Jew is the same, right? that's the level that distinguishes between Jew and non-Jew, and then there's a level that distinguishes between the five that we're talking about here. Okay. All right. So then you read these five. There's the righteous man who prospers, a righteous man who suffers, a wicked man who prospers, a wicked man who suffers, and the intermediate one, the Bainim. Okay. It is explained that the righteous man who prospers is the perfect tzaddik. Tzaddik is the Hebrew for righteous. The righteous man who suffers is the imperfect tzaddik. Hmm. Now, if something is, if, if, if that, that's an explanation, something needs to be explained. So what is saying, what is saying that a righteous man who suffers is a perfectly righteous person? How does saying the perfectly righteous explain, or sorry, I said that wrong. A righteous man who prospers is a perfectly righteous man. How does one thing explain the other? If you have an explanation, something's not understood. What's, what's not understood about the righteous man who suffers that you're explaining by saying that he's not perfectly righteous? Well, I mean, maybe he wants to be perfectly righteous. I have a righteous man and he suffers. I have a righteous man and he prospers. What needs to be explained? Why? Why? Oh, it's very clear. Like, he deserves to suffer. It's a problem. But you say he's a tzaddik, and Hashem says that if you follow... Hashem says in many places in Torah, if you will follow in my ways, if you will be a tzaddik, da-da-da, that, like, all the good things will happen. Okay. So, and and then at the same time with the wicked, right? In other words, we would expect, if we read the Torah and didn't know how the world worked, we would expect, we'd look outside the world, we'd see all the righteous people are what? And all the wicked people. But it turns out that some righteous prosper, some righteous suffer, some wicked prosper, and some wicked suffer, right? So that, that, that fact that these things don't correlate with each other needs to be explained. Okay? Now, what's the explanation? Why does the righteous person suffer. What's the explanation? Why do they suffer? Why are the righteous people who suffer? He's not perfect. He's not perfectly righteous. He's righteous, but not perfectly righteous. He could be more righteous. What does that even mean? That's a good question. Yeah. Would you consider suffering a choice? Mm. Yes, but not yet. And as we develop it, um, Yes, but it, it, it requires explanation of how that's the case. As of right now, I don't want to go. Okay, take more. Okay. 
Why is it that some wicked people suffer? Well, let's follow the logic, okay? Because it only explains to us half. They're not perfectly wicked. They're not perfectly wicked, that's why they suffer? Yeah. But if they were perfectly they wicked... So they are perfectly wicked, they have nothing that they've done that's good. No, I'm saying the other opposite thing. Yeah. No, yeah. Okay. So, this is why whiteboards were created. Okay. Right, if there's 10 questions and you get 10 right out of 10, what's that? 
perfection. So what does it mean that something is perfect? 100%, right? It's not lacking in anything. In fact, what is the Hebrew word for perfection? There's two words. Shalev, which also means whole, and Gomer, which means complete. But they're basically the same idea. That's in a different sense. That's like whole soul. In the Gemara, right, something borrows one to the other. So, when you say something's perfect, like perfect what? It's like a perfect score on a test. Uh, perfect, a perfect, if you're a pitcher, you're pitching in a baseball game, like you're a perfect yeah. pitcher for a game. Perfect, complete, these are relative terms. They don't have any objective meaning unless you put it into a context. So, there's being a tzaddik, and how well is this one done at being a tzaddik? Perfect. perfect. Like, whatever it is to be a tzaddik, not missing anything. And this one, he's being a tzaddik, but something about it? Like 80%. Yeah, 80%. Like, like tzaddik, but he has room to improve in whatever it counts as being a tzaddik. It's so like a B. Yeah. It's a B, yeah. Okay. Or C. Oh, or D, because you're still passing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What? Nobody's perfect. Everyone has room to improve. Like, in, in, everyone has room to improve in some area. But the idea of this is very important. The idea of saying that something is perfect is has to be in what sense is it perfect. See, if you, if you, um, if you, you met the test, if you have a test and the test only has 10 questions and you answered all of them right, you don't have anything to prove on that test, there could be other reasons like for room to Now, to say that someone is perfect in all areas and all things, okay, that, that doesn't exist. But it's very dangerous to take a word and like render it useless. Like, you could actually be, you know, uh, you could actually, if you're a baseball, if you're a pitcher, you could pitch a perfect game, which means you throw every single pitch and strike everybody out and you pitch a perfect game. There's nothing better you could have done. That's it. Like, that's the maximum. That doesn't mean you're a great husband, but like that's a separate area of life. Right. Okay. You're saying perfect you're perfect in every... In every way of being a tzaddik. Could there be other things in life other than being a tzaddik? Are there? There are. are there? There are. There are tons of things. We're going to learn about them. <laughs> yeah. Being a tzaddik is not like the end all and be all of everything. He's just perfect when it comes to being a tzaddik. You're saying there are things, so, there are dimensions on which you could be better or worse that don't affect whether you're a tzaddik or that's not? That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> In fact, you might be better at some of those dimensions than the tzaddik is. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. It's very <laughs> not only in fact, you may be almost certainly This isn't like being taller or shorter. This is like moral character traits. This is uh, stuff having to do with relationship with God, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although it could be tall, like you could technically be tall. But I don't know if there's such a thing as a, when it comes to height, there's a perfect height. Taller is better in some contexts and shorter in other contexts. Okay. Now, then you come to the Russia. Okay, why is this Russia, this wicked person? Why is he? Was one prospering and one suffering? Well, now we have to figure this out. Well, is 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 being a perfect tzaddik like a good thing? Yeah. Yes. Is being a perfect Russia a good thing? No. No. Because that means, what does it mean to be a perfect Russia? Well, you're still getting 100%. 100% on the test, right? Which is, on the scale of how bad you can be, you have maximized it. There is nothing worse. So you get zero. Right. right. In other words, we are trying to make sure you have no redeeming qualities, and you succeeded. You have none. 
So that's the reason the prosperous suffer. But remember, suffering is subjective. So yeah. the rush, I mean, the rush has to accept experiences. Also, oh, is it the other way around? This Russia who suffers is a perfect Russia, and Russia possibly right. is a not so, a perfect Russia. Because being a Russia is a reason to suffer. Just like being a tzaddik is a reason to prosper. You're following the basic idea in the Torah, like, you know, if you're good, you should get good stuff. If you're bad, you should get bad stuff. And remember, suffering is subjective. Right? If I lose money, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm suffering. It's how I experience that loss of money. Well, so why would a perfect Russia suffer? Well, because of bad. Because a perfect Russia bad. Yeah, but if so they should subjectively, they don't think that that's a reason to so suffer. Like, but, so why would they suffer? But remember, the, the, get whole, the whole the premise bad. of the difficulty that needs to be explained is that yeah, there's war and punishment. So in principle, I think being a tzaddik is a reason to prosper, and being a rush is a reason to suffer. And now you need to explain why sometimes even the person's a tzaddik, they're not, they're suffering, and why sometimes the person's a rasha, they're prospering. But the, the standard thing from the Torah is, Bad people should be suffering, and righteous people should be prospering. So the reason, so the thing, the thing that needs to really be explained are these ones. These are the exceptions. These are the things that are hard to understand. Yeah. So you say, okay, well he suffers because it's true he's a tzaddik, but he's not a perfect tzaddik. So there's like some justification for his suffering. And yeah, he should suffer, but he's not a perfect Russia. He has some redeeming qualities, so there's some justification for his prospering. Suffering from the knowledge that he's a Russia. No, no, no. He's suffering like because like he wanted to get the promotion and instead he got fired. That kind of suffering. Yeah. Well, like, couldn't there be a tzaddik who is a perfect tzaddik, but he suffers anyway because it's part of Hashem's plan? But it doesn't necessarily make sense to us. But in the grand scheme of things, that maybe this person who is a perfect sonic, them suffering, or a not perfect Rasha prospering, that they could end up like, having an influence on other people that could, you know, create like a snowball and spiral. I just mean like, you know, Hashem's claim is so big, and Hashem's reasoning for doing things is so much bigger than us, and that like we can't fully comprehend it. So I mean, it just isn't it simplifying it too much to say, oh, it's sonic that suffers. Only suffers because they're not a perfect sonic and a Russia who prospers. Only prospers because they're not a perfect Russia. There could be crossover. It's just to the point where it's not something that we as humans can fully understand because we can't see the grand picture. So, two things. One, it is simplified because anytime you ask to explain something at all, it's simplified. Now, then the question is what's the basis of this? Is it just because like somebody came up with it, or is this part of the consciousness that you do? And that's exactly what the Talmud is discussing. Actually, the Talmud goes through a whole discussion, brings sources and evidences from the Torah. It actually first starts off by saying it has to do with your lineage, and then that doesn't hold true. It's counterexamples from the Torah. So this is more instead of people sitting and observing and trying to theorize as to why it would be the case, in which case the criticism is perfectly valid. It's more the sages of the Talmud 
um, trying to explain what Hashem revealed to us through the Torah. And that, now what is also important to understand is we have not really talked about what makes somebody a tzaddik and how you can be a perfect one or an imperfect one, right? Now, the obvious answer is like, you know, this person only does good things and this person only does bad things and they're somewhere in the middle, right? That would be obvious. But it's not going to be that simple. Okay. Yeah. So are there distinct differences between a perfect tzaddik and a not perfect tzaddik? Well, there has to be because they said that these are five distinct categories, right? Which is weird because you would think that like perfect and not perfect would come on a scale, right? Like if you keep getting better and better, better eventually you maximize out, right? Or it's like 100% or less. Right. So there's something, something has to explain how these are distinct categories. So the point there are two, it's Tzadik who suffers and Rashi prospers. Because that both qualities of the wicked and not, we consider like a Benoni. Well, that's another thing, which is like, what happens to Benoni? The Benoni suffers and Benoni prospers, like a little bit confusing. Well, if he's not perfect Tzadik, then he has some certain qualities. And if he's not a perfect Rashi, he has some Tzadik qualities. So. Okay. That's assuming that everyone's on a spectrum from Tzadik to Russia and that Benoni is in the middle. Right? Well, Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we are going to, if we're going to approach this, if we're going to approach this um, more patiently, we would say it's like this. All I now know is the following. There's something that it is to be a tzaddik, of which you can have how many. You can either perfect that or have room to work on it. There's something called being a rush. You can either perfect that, which I guess is a bad thing, or you can have, you know, room work on it. You really want to perfect being a Russian. The consequence of being a perfect tzaddik is that your life is one of constantly prospering. And the consequence of being a perfect Russian is your life is a life of suffering. And then when you aren't perfect, for some strange reason, even though presumably the, the tzaddik who isn't perfect is better than the Russian who isn't perfect somehow, the suffering and prosperous is direct. And we don't understand why that would be. But we don't actually have any clear definition of what it means to be a tzaddik or a Russian, do we? We just understand that it's the degree to which they're a tzaddik or a Russian influences their prospering or suffering. That's all we've learned. But then we have another source. And what does that other source say? That source is a Zohar. It's called the Raya Mehemna. Does anyone know what Raya Mehemna means? What? Raya Mehemna is Aramaic for the faithful shepherd. Who is the faithful shepherd? No, he's not the faithful shepherd. He's the owner of the sheep. <laughs> they work in ancient times is someone owns the sheep, but then they have someone shepherd the sheep for them. They want to make sure that shepherd is reliable. Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, he is the faithful shepherd. Now, who wrote the Zohar? First of all, everyone's heard of the book, the Zohar, before you've heard of it? Who wrote it? Nope. You're going to get this wrong. It's impossible for you to get it right. No way. Well, no, there was someone who wrote it down, but it's, no one's ever heard of him. His name is Rabbi Abba. No. Yeah. Abba. Yeah, his name is Rabbi Abba. No one's ever heard of him. That's Rabba. That's Rabba. Why have you never heard of him? Because, like, you know, there's thousands of sages, and, like, you know, not everyone makes, gets it onto the front page. Yeah. 
Rabbi Abba was a student to Rabbi Shem Yochai, and the Zohar gets attributed to him. The Zohar is an interesting book. The Zohar is basically there was a sage named Rabbi Shimon Yochai. Bar means the son of. So Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yochai, and he, um, he was a big expert in Kabbalah. And so he would have uh, classes and discussions and forbrangings with his students and his colleagues and the souls of people who long since died and the souls of the righteous people who had yet to be born and angels and we just like all get together and chat about Kabbalah. And um, then he had his disciple Rabbi Abba write a transcript of all those discussions in a book and arrange it according to the weekly Torah reading. And that's the Zohar. Ooh. Yeah. So the beginning of the Zohar is how like all they all get together and like Moshe's there and Eliyahu and he's there and the souls of people who haven't yet been born or hanging out and the angels. So there's a section which is all the teachings of Moshe Rabbeinu on Kabbalah. So if you want to know what Moshe Rabbeinu says on Kabbalah, like you can look in the section of the Zohar called the Rai Mehemna, which is, and he tends to be pretty authoritative being that he's the one who transmitted the Torah to us. So when it says, it says in the Rai Mehemna, that means what Moshe Rabbeinu told Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai as recorded in the Zohar. And what does he say? He says, it's explained that the righteous man who suffers is one whose evil's nature is subservient to his good nature. Okay. So you've got the tzaddik who suffers. And why is the tzaddik suffering? What did the Gemara tell us? Because it's not a perfect tzaddik. It's not a perfect tzaddik. What does Moshe Rabbeinu and the Zohar tell us? That the perfect tzaddik... That this, that this suffering, this tzaddik who suffers, yeah, his evil nature is subservient to his good nature. Okay. Okay. Does we get any more information about the other three categories? No. So what do we have to do? Have to out we have to figure it out. We have to fill in, right? Okay. Can you, can you just go to Ryan You could. Like, does it explain the rest there? It does. Uh-huh. And it's very long and intricate. Uh-huh. But you could also figure it out. <laughs> you could do it. But you also need to find a copy of the Zohar that you can read and translate. Not me. I'm okay. saying you could go to the Zohar. <laughs> I did. <laughs> okay. It's quite fascinating. I'm saying, I'm saying it's theoretically it's possible. It's theoretically possible, person. right. Like, but, it's but, not like there's no, the answer's just not written anywhere. It's just not written here. No, it's, okay. it's not written here. He, 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 he actually writes, etc. Like, you go look up the rest of it. Yeah. Just, I'm giving you enough that if you are familiar or you're intelligent, you can figure it out. Did you go look it up? I did go look it up. Yeah. I have a tendency to look things up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so let's think about it. So, this person's evil nature is subjugated to their good nature. What about the perfect tzaddik? Probably doesn't have either. Well, uh, yeah. Well, the, it can't be that their evil is not subjugated to their good. That would be like less righteous, right? So there probably is no evil. So there's no evil. Because <laughs> anything, anything, anything better than that means there's no evil. Well, I guess the way I was thinking that was yep. that you were going to say that their good was like subservient to their evil, which means that they have to work harder to. That is true. And in that sense, people who are not a tzaddik might be actually better at certain things, such as the area of working harder. Mm-hmm. Yes. You asked about areas in which you might be better than a tzaddik. That wasn't my question. 
if we start measuring who is, who is perfect at working hard and who has room to work on the whole working hard thing. So you're saying yeah. that how hard a person works or their capacity to work hard is not correlated to being a tzaddik. It's like a totally independent. No, right. Because tzaddik is the word right, righteous. Mm -hmm. right? It has to do with some standard of like the correct mode of you know, being. We don't know what that is. And, but how much effort you put into something. I mean, some of, the, some of the people, I mean, who puts in more effort than a person who has to totally change their life around because they made a lot of really serious mistakes? That's, that's a serious amount of effort. Okay. So there we've got no evil, or just link is positive, only good. Okay, well then what would be the other two? Would be in good subservient to evil, right. and then only evil. Okay. Well, that already is a very interesting way of thinking about things, right? Yeah. Does anyone own evil? Yes. Would you like a name? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Would you like? I can give you some names. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeravim, Yeravim, the sons of the Vat. Son of what? By the way, we're limiting our discussion to Jews, not Jews, a whole different discussion. This is all about Jews. Yeravim ben Nevat, Yeravim, the son of the Vat. An idolatrous king. Who idolatrous king who convinced all the Jewish people to abandon God and never go to the temple and worship the golden calf again. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so intense. Um, he was only evil. Yeah, only evil. He was so evil, by the way, that God comes to him personally and says, You're of him. Do tshuva. And you and I and King David will go strolling together in the Garden of Eden. And you know what Yeravim says? To God. Who's going to walk first? David. So your says, I'm not interested. Goodbye. So I'm not, if I'm not, in, if I'm not first, don't want to. How do you merit God's It was the, it was there of the first temple. Prophecy was like a whole work during that. Yeah. But Yenashem was always in you. Well, we have to explain that, but we don't know about Yenashem yet, right? Time's written in order. You want, you want a few other names or we can move on? There are other names. People who are totally evil. Only evil. Yeah. So maybe this is going off of that and like later, but if there's only evil, no, this isn't. Okay. Ooh, I have a question. Yeah. We learned that if a court, like in a court, that if they, if everybody votes to put a person to death in a capital case, that they're not put to death because somebody should be able to see something good in that person. But what if someone like Yerav and Ben-Devad is on trial? So... I'm going to give you an answer, which is not an answer. <laughs> Which is that you have to, is that there's two areas of Judaism. One will call it halacha, and the other will say it's like not halacha. Okay. A lot of times a halacha is brought up in a class or in a book or in something to illustrate a, a non-halachic idea, like an ethical principle or a moral, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And that's nice, and that's true. And that can often create the impression that halacha works like you have some sort of moral principle, and then that's the basic halacha. Halacha is its own internal system and only like roughly overlaps with morals and ethics. And so, the actual halacha is derived from a verse independent of any reasoning, and then people are like, well, maybe the reasoning is this, or maybe the reasoning is that. And so you can't really, like you have to ask questions about the halacha separately than you ask questions about the, uh, 
saying it's normal for halacha. It's, it's, it's normal. It's normal that the idea that's been explained to halacha doesn't perfectly match up with all the deals of halacha when you start getting into the details because the areas until which overlap, but they're not synonymous. Which is an annoying thing, but it's just important thing to know that prevents you from getting frustrated all the time. Yeah. So if you have a perfect ration who's sinning all the time, and... How do you know that being a perfect ration is sinning all the time? Okay, um... Who says he's sinning all the time? Me. <laughs> who says a rush is sinning all the time? Like, where did you get that piece of information from? All I know is it's only evil. Like, what does it mean only evil? I don't know. Okay, so if you have some... Who says it's his behavior? I don't know what that means. All I know is that if this means the evil subject to good, and the better, like, better than that is just to have only good, and then you know, then you work logically. So I guess this one's good is subject to the evil, and this one's only evil. But like, what does that actually mean? Okay. I don't know. So if you have a Russian who's only evil, and then they change their like laugh around to become good, could they become like a static that does only good? Because if they're on that extreme spectrum. Could they change it to become positive? Like so, there's a story so, of that guy in the river. Yes. I don't know if he was only evil. Yeah. But like he was on that extreme. Well, let 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 me. Okay, you, let me ask the question again, and let's see. If, given what we've already learned, we can answer the question. Okay. The question is: If they're only evil, can they change? No, you can't. There's nothing to change yet. And this is a question where we're paying attention at the beginning of class. When we said that there are five distinct categories, right? That's referring to what? The entire, your entire being or only one part of your being? One part. Right? Because remember we said there's a level in which all Jews are the same, right? So if you think about it, this is the Jew, and this is the Every Jew has something that makes them a Jew, right? Because you know, we're saying these are all together in Jew. So, if you're a tzaddik, that just means you're different from the rush on this outer level. There is some other fundamental level which, you know, the same, right? It's like, let me use a simple physical analogy. Is a plastic water bottle the same thing as a plastic pen? Yeah, well, it depends. Are we talking about it being plastic? Well, you could melt down the water bottle and then mold it into a pen or anything else like plastic, right? So there's this outer, the shape in which it is, right? In that sense, like a, a water bottle and a pen are like two different things, right? There's no gradations between water bottles and pens, to my knowledge. But if you go to a deeper level, the underlying material, and you melt it down, right, you can change it. But we didn't say, like, you can't do anything to a chimpanzee to turn it into a dolphin, at least normally, right? But that's not what we're saying. We're saying there's these Jews, and some Jews are structured like Russia, and some Jews are formed like a tzaddik, and like, if the underlying core is the same, there's no reason why you couldn't like, dismantle one or the other. So when we say that there's only good and only evil, we're talking about which level, that inner level or the outer level? That outer level. We don't know what that outer level exactly is, but otherwise they would have to be different species, different creatures. We're saying different kinds of the same thing, a Jew. Yeah? So like, it's a perfect Russia, Born good and they become a perfect Russia if they're choosing evil, or are they just like inherently evil? Now, we are going to talk about that. 
practice. Now that I was going to ask them. What did you get to? Okay, yeah. In the text it says we find the Gemara five distinct types. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't say types of Jew. It says, and then it goes on to say right, but if you look at the, but but the context is talking about Jews. But then if it's types of Jews, then it's one category. It's not that's what I'm trying separate. to right. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that you can have distinct types of things, right? Like you can have married people, not married people, yeah. men, women, right? So when we're talking about distinct types, there's something fundamental about all Jews that makes them Jews. And then there's something else which is relatively speaking more superficial, and that's being that's the thing that's being described as Russia or Tzaddik. Okay. Otherwise, like the Russia and the Tzaddik, like just two totally different kinds of creatures, like chimpanzees and dolphins. Okay. Which means that there is at least the possibility of changing from one to the other. We don't know that you can, but there at least creates that possibility. Yeah. Is Benoni sort of like an in-between in-between sphere? Or would it be in that outer? Uh, presumably, it's got to be in that outer thing because, like, if you group those all as five categories, it seems like it's all in the same, doing the same issue. But we don't really know. See, what we're doing is we're amassing information. In the first half of the chapter, is all the information that we don't understand. We're putting it together so we at least know what we don't understand. Okay. So, let's stop right now and let's summarize. Where's the erase? of good. What makes a rasha a rasha? The dominance of evil. But that's only according to one explanation, right? Yeah. The other explanation isn't an explanation at all. Like that's I think, from one source we have the thing about good and evil, the other source we haven't even talked about what, how we define that. Right, but if we're assuming that it's one Torah, okay. why create contradictions if we don't have to? Okay. So now, there are two ways of having a dominance of good. One is you can just only have good. If you only have good, guess what dominates in life? Good, by default. That would be like, that's, that's the ultimate in good dominating. What's, what's, what's also a form of good dominating, but it's not the same? Is when the evil exists, but it's somehow subjected, subservient to the good. And you have the verse when it comes to the Russian. Okay. Now, how does that explain the suffering? How does that explain the suffering? Yeah. Sort of, it could be the case that someone who has evil in their nature, even if it is subservient to the good, still sometimes, whether it's like in their mind or their actions, they're bringing that evil into the world and therefore surrounding themselves with suffering. Yeah, there's some link between that evil. It, it, it somehow still exists. It's subservient to it, but somehow that evil is bringing upon some suffering. Okay. Why does this? Why does this Russia prosper? Because it still has some 
And what does that good bring into their life? Does this mean that they always prosper? Does this mean that they always suffer? No. So you have to think about this. The tzad, perfect tzadik who prospers means he prospers and never. And the perfect Russia who suffers doesn't prosper at all. But these ones, we're just saying there's a mixture, right? We're not saying like, yeah, he's, what? The language is the same. It says vitovlo and vitovlo. Like, the language is exactly the same for the tzaddik who prospers and the Russia who prospers. So how do we know that they're not prospering exactly the same way? Because you have to, because when you start, because when you start explaining something, the language might be the same, but the underlying idea could be different. If this person only has good inside them, Right? And for let's use the reward and punishment idea. So reward and punishment basically works, or I don't know reward and punishment, let's just say good attracts prosperity. Well, if there's only good, then what's it going to bring into them? Only prosperity. This person has some evil. Now, is there, so as a result of that evil, what comes into their life? Suffering. Does that mean they're, does that mean that, so we're just saying, remember, this was, we have to explain why there is some suffering in their life. We're not explaining why their life is only suffering. I mean, that's logical, but it doesn't say, does it say that anywhere in the text? Like, you're saying the good attracts prosperity, but we don't necessarily know that from the text because the good subjugated to evil also that, is, says that he prospers. But that was the original basis of the question. The original question was, I would think that if you're a tzaddik, you should prosper. Oh, okay. If you're a Russia, you should suffer. So the thing I had to explain was, why is this tzaddik suffering and why is this Russia prospering? And what I'm saying is, even though good dominates in his life, there is some buried deep down evil which explains the anomalous suffering. There is here some buried deep down good which explains the anomalous prosperity. And that these ones are just what we expected. Yeah? Are we supposed to assume that a tzaddik who suffers has a better life than a Russia who prospers because they, even if it's like 1%, have a little bit more good in them? Yeah. Yeah, because clearly, I mean, if, if, if they're still holding true that good brings upon prosperity and evil brings upon suffering, well, clearly he has much more good than he does. Right? That would make sense? But much more, like, well, what much more doesn't actually mean... Well, it means enough that in terms of what's subjugated to what, what's dominating what, it's totally reversed. That the evil in this person is somehow totally subjugated to the good and the the good in this person is totally subjugated to the evil. So that, that, that's a totally inverted. The only thing they have in common is that both of them, good and evil, exist. Mm -hmm. But that's where the similarity ends. It's not a matter of degree. Okay. Do we know what, we, we just don't know what the good and evil we're talking about is, right? Um, we have one more source. What's the last source? The Gemara. The Gemara says, "The righteous are motivated by their good nature, and the wicked by their evil nature. While the intelligent men are motivated by both." Okay. The, the tzaddik is motivated by their good. Now, I think in the translation, if I remember correctly, there's a footnote nine. Yeah. That's okay. So this is one of the problems of working in translation, right? Yeah. There's a so he's not. Yeah. Okay. Oh. So in so in the in the translation it says motivated by, but the actual Hebrew you translate it as judged by. We'll get to later why it's judged. Okay. 
So what does that tell us? When a tzaddik does something, what's motivating them? Good. Good. Would a tzaddik ever insult you because they're having a bad day? Well, think about it. Well, think about it. We just learned that a tzaddik is motivated by their good inclination. So if a tzaddik, would a tzaddik ever insult you because they're in a bad mood? No, because no. they focus on the good. Now, would a tzaddik ever insult you? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Why? Maybe it's making us Right. Motivation is very important. Motivation means we're not talking about behavior. We're talking about why you're doing the behavior. Where did we get motivated from? Because that's how they translated it. Did that say judge? The literal translation is judge. The classic interpretation the most Mepharshim have is that it's referring to motivation. Dr. Rebbe goes later on and says, why does Daft use the word judged? We're going to go with the translation as it is. Wait, okay. Wait, the translation changes to judge? It says, am I the only one that says judged by their good nature and the wicked by their evil? Yeah, so the translator updated it. Okay. No, mine says motivated. Yours yeah, the motivated. old ones say motivated. Okay. Which creates confusion. Okay. okay. So it's like if you if you, if you look if you look at the classic commentators in the Gemara, the way they interpret judge is motivated. Mine says motivated. And then others explain what is judge. So it's now fine. That's for does that sound fine for tzaddik? There's a tzaddik is a person. Every time they do something, their motivation is always good. Fine. Okay. But what does it mean in Russia? Is every time they do something, what are they motivated by? Uh, that sounds pretty harsh, no? But then also, what makes sense for the one who prospers because he still got good. Yeah, what is that good inside? Like, who cares if he's not if it's not influencing his motivations? Then what difference does it make if he has it or not? Right. So th- this is a bit weird. We're saying that the wicked person is always motivated by evil. It's like. Okay, if you're motivated by evil, you're a pretty bad person. Right? Okay. So, let's just throw this out there. Do you think when we say evil, if we're going to take that literally, that the wicked person is motivated, um, is motivated by evil, do you think that means that we're talking about a person whose conscious desire and everything is how to hurt other people? Do you think such a person exists? Like, probably even your of them, right? This wicked guy. He probably at some times, like, I don't know, he picked up his grandkid and wanted to hug him. He wasn't, like, trying to think of, like, how could I cause evil, right? It's, it's hard to imagine a person who every motivation consciously is how do I hurt somebody? How do I do something horrific, right? Like, I don't imagine such a person exists. So probably evil here we have to think of in a more broader sense. Okay. And well, the reason I bring this up is that we, when we hear words, what we tend to do is react emotionally to the words rather than think about what the word could mean. Evil, it's a very harsh word, right? Yeah. But do we yet know what counts as evil? No. So maybe we should be open mind. Maybe evil is like, you know, maybe it turns out a lot of things are like going the category of evil, things that we think are rather benign. And so it's not actually making the harshest statement as we think it is. Um, and it's very important to ask yourself, am I reacting to the, the kind of aftertaste of the word? Or do I actually have a good definition of what we mean in context? I know evil and good are opposites, but beyond that, I don't have a good definition of what we mean by good, I don't have a good definition of what we mean by evil. Other than, you know, evil's probably not so not good. Okay. Then we have the Bainani. 
What does it say about the Bainini? The Bainini, the intermediate, are motivated by both. So as of right now, what category would you put yourself into? Are you say you're motivated by good, motivated by evil, motivated by both? So to go back to this motivated by good versus motivated by evil. Yeah. So the imperfect sodic is motivated by good. Good. And then because we the said what makes it sodic it's sodic because they're motivated by good. And so the both both right. both sodics are motivated by good. Okay. So we don't know why, according to this third one, there's a difference in the prospering and the suffering. Right. So we. So then if we ourselves were motivated by good, then we would be considered tzaddikim. Seemingly. So then we would consider ourselves vain in Motivation. You're always motivated by good. No. That's what I'm saying. If we were to consider ourselves only like motivated by good, then we would be considered Okay. Some people are motivated by good. And they only have a good nature. And their life is full of good. There you go. What do we call such a person? Perfect sadhik. Some people are only motivated by good. Their nature is that they have evil, but it's what? Subjugated to the good. And their life is as some suffering. Yeah? It's not all bad, but it has some bad. Okay. Then we have people who are motivated by both. What's their nature? Do we know? Um, Did it say? They have a yeah. 50-50. Didn't say it. Did it. Do we know what their life looks like? Nope. Presumably it's some mixture of you know, good and bad, right? Then we have people who are motivated by evil. One person is motivated by evil, there's good, but the good is subject to the evil. And what do their lives look like? Um, they have some good happen to them. But mainly it's bad. Well, because they got a lot of problems going on, right? And then you have people who are motivated by evil, their nature is entirely evil, and their lives are just full of suffering. Okay. That's what we learned. We call this one a perfect sadhik, this one a imperfect sadhik, this one a imperfect rasha, and imperfect rasha. Okay. That needs to be explained, right? Okay, here's the good news. Do you want me to explain these two? Chapter 10. You want to explain these two? Chapter 11. You want to explain this one? Chapter 12 through arbitrarily to decide where it ends based on your reading of the time. I like to go into 25, 12 to 25, but whatever. There's a lot to be explained. What? So the past that is how to enjoy us. So why is it called the book of the Vinny if it's not all about that? 
Well, like if that's only small. Well, because what we're going to see is that everything else, everything about the, everything that in everything in time is about how it, uh, understanding this middle thing here. Some of it directly, and some of it indirectly. Okay. Then we have Rabba. Rabba comes along and says, I am a Bainu. Okay. And Abaye said to him, Master, you do not make it possible for anyone to live. Okay, who is the teacher and who is the student? There's these two rabbis. No one's in Rabba, one was in Abaye. Who is the teacher who is the student? Who is the teacher? the student? How do you know? Because you He's called a master. Because he's called a master. Okay. Does Abai agree with Rabba that Rabba is a Benini? No. No. Why not? Because he studies Torah all the time. That's not what he says. Who? What does Abai say? You do not make it possible for anyone to live. You're not making it possible for anyone to live. What does that mean? Like, if you're a baby now, we can't live like what has We're all going to get like, lined up and shot. Like, that's a weird expression. Yeah. But the bar is so high. The bar is too high, right? Because like this. Rabba, Rabba's amazing. Okay? So if Rabba's here... And everyone must be there. Then, then, like, you've just set the bar impossibly high. Nobody can, nobody can be Rabba. Right? It's like, if Moshe were to come along and say, you know, Moshe... Moshe was like, it's like, says, you know, I, I meet the bare minimum requirements of being a good Jew. If, that, if Moshe were to say that, what does that mean? We're all doomed to failure. There's just no way to achieve anything. Right? You don't want to take the people who are at the top of you know, success in a certain endeavor and say, well, that's the basic standard. Now, why is Benini the basic standard? Because what does the word Russia mean? Wicked. Is it acceptable to be a wicked person? No. no. Right? You said don't be wicked. So I can't be wicked, so I have to be at least... Bainity. And if you're making Bainity impossibly high, then you're setting me up for failure. That's not very nice. Don't do that. Yeah. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean that like each category is of equal size. That like Bainity could have you know, a very large continuum just within that category. And that you know, reaching the level of a perfect Sadiq might not actually be possible. Or if it is, then it's for like Yeah, like the most holy person in the world. Like, I mean, I don't know. That just kind of feels like it's assuming that, oh, because I'm not the same level of that person, that means that I have to be a Rasha, but it's like we don't know. Right. So, right. So, 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 this gets into the issue of what did Rabba mean when he said Bainini, and what did Abai mean when he said Bainini, right? Clearly, Abai understood him as saying Bainini as, some, as referring to some feature which is impossible for regular people to achieve. And clearly Rabba probably didn't think that. In other words, if it could very well be that Rabba is not a Bainini. But when he said Bainini, in order for Abai's criticism that you're making people as a standard impossible people live, in order for that to, for to be able to defend against that criticism, you would have to say, what I meant by Bainini is some feature that I possess that other people could theoretically achieve, realistically achieve. But Abaye clearly understood it as something that's about Rabba that most people can never achieve. That's why he criticized it. 
So from here, it's very clear that whatever a bain is has to be something that is at least achievable. Because saying it as an unachievable thing basically relegates everybody to failure. Everyone would end up violating the basic requirement of not being a Russia. And that's not okay. But how do we... One second. Wouldn't like, the robber be saying, like, I'm the highest of the bandini and there can be lower bandini? Yeah, in other words... In, 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 right. Like, not necessarily that you need to hit his level of bandini, but that there are... Right. The issue is, and the, the issue is, because these are distinct categories, if you want to make a dis- category clear, the question is, you want to use an example where you would, like... If you're talking about people, no one's exactly the same. Right, but you, there's people who are like if I want to give you an example of a prophet, who would be a good example of a prophet? Moshe, right? Because that's pretty unequivocal. There's a prophet, right? If I start like saying, you know, like uh, Dr. Rebel was a prophet, like okay, now we get into questions. What do we mean by prophecy? Levels of prophecy? Does everyone agree? It's like you're making. A, if you want an example of a prophet, just go with the simpler one, right? If you want an example of Baini, find someone who's clearly unequivocally a Baini. We don't have any arguments about that, and that's a good example. Why are you picking someone where it's like, maybe you're a baby, maybe you're more than a baby, it's like, it's confusing. Just find someone who's a clear baby, that's the example, go with that. So it's like student is saying, you're not the middle ground. Like, yeah, like, like you may, may possibly, plausibly justify your argument why you think you're a baby, but you're not a good example of a baby. Like, a good example of a baby, because if some people are going to say, let us emulate Rabba, well then you set the standard of possibly high. We're not going to emulate you. Give us someone else to emulate. Okay. Why does Abaya make the leap? I mean, it says something in a footnote, but why does it say, why does he believe that if you're, if everyone else is a Rasha, fine, what does that mean it's impossible to live? That the standard is too high. So it's a metaphor. Yeah. So uh, to be fair, this, this expression has a lot of different commentaries and interpretations, and some of them are, shall we say, very creative. Um, the Rebbe, who is, has, a, has a, is a great desire for being informed before you open your mouth. So the Rebbe says, well, we see this expression used in the Talmud and a few other places in legal context, and what it basically means is that you've made the legal standard impossibly strict, that nobody can live up to it. And so clearly that's what he meant here. Like, we can make it there's metaphoric, and you need Siddiqui, like, there's all sorts of other, like, other, but the most basic thing is that the Talmud is, and other contexts use this expression, you don't allow anyone else to live. What it means is you've made a standard and possibly strict that nobody can live up to. And that's just a metaphor for that. So if you are expert in all 60 tractates of the Talmud, then you would know that. No? <laughs> that's, why, that's why I looked up what the Rebbe had to say on it. <laughs> okay, although I did look up the Gemaras that the Rebbe quoted, because I wanted to see it. Okay. We have a few more minutes. To explain all the aforesaid clearly, right? Because we have no idea what we're talking about. That was a whole class of where all we learned is that... There are five categories. There's five categories. There's mixtures of good and evil in your nature and your motivation, and they, they come in these very distinct five levels, but we don't really understand what they mean at all, or how to move between them if that's at all possible. So that all needs to be understood. Yeah? Going back to our original oath, are we supposed to think of ourselves as being a perfectly wicked person? I don't know. Does that make a difference? Probably does. Like, oh, that's pretty bad. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, knowing nothing else, my, my, my gut instinct would be just saying no. Like, even if I just was completely ignored of anything else in the time. Because that's pretty harsh. 
and so as much of a, of a difference as there is between a, uh, an imperfectly righteous person and a, an imperfectly wicked person, there is just as much of a difference between a perfectly wicked person and an imperfectly wicked person. Well, maybe, because we don't really know what good and evil really are yet, so it's hard to jump to that. So there, there are things with maybe conceptually very easy, but like, like, unless you know the re- it's like... It's kind of on the assumption that these are things on a scale, but we don't know that. Yeah, we don't know exactly like what they are. Orange. If we know what they are, then maybe we have a way of like... Mm-hmm. That's like I said, we need to explain all of this. Um, also need to understand what Job said. Anyone's heard of Job? Yeah. Job was a... He suffered a lot. By the way, when the Zohar wants to speak about a righteous person who suffered, they use Job as an example. Because it says that he was righteous and he suffered. What was his name? He said, Lord of the universe, thou hast, that's so good English, thou hast created righteous men and thou hast created wicked men. What does that sound like? Who determines whether you're a tzaddik or a rasha? God. And that has to be understood, for it is not preordained whether a man will be righteous or wicked. So was Job right? No. No? So then just like say, Job was wrong, move on. See, the thing is, Job was right. That's why we have a question. On the one hand, something about being righteous or wicked is being is determined by God. On the other hand, in some sense, it's up to you. If it's just clearly up to you and God doesn't like have any say in the matter, then just Job is wrong, we don't explain it. Job, you were wrong, move on. The reason why there's a question here is because Job was right in some sense, but it's still somehow up to us on another hand. Right? So not only do we not know what these categories really are, we also don't really understand to the extent we have free will. We have some free will over it, that's clear, because the Talmud says it's not preordained, but it's somehow controlled by God also because Job was right. That's what creates this question. Yeah. So is it kind of like saying like God says if you're a Saudi or wicked, and then in between the two, like we're picking like prosper and suffer, that's where you can... I don't know. I don't know the answer. I just have the question. It's not something. <laughs> yeah. well, couldn't a perfect Rasha still be considered as having some good because they still do have a godly soul, so that deep essence of them still right. is good? Because the whole discussion of Tzaddik and Rasha is talking about that on that outer layer. The inner layer that makes a Jew a Jew, that's going to be staying, you know, the same for all of us. Okay, so up till now, all we have is a framework of a bunch of things, and we also know that it's not even entirely clear. Where we know that there's people who are motivated by good, some because they only have a good nature, and some because their evil nature is subdued to their good nature. Some people are motivated by evil because their good is sub- subdued to their evil nature, and some because they only have an evil nature. And some people are motivated by both. And we don't know fully how much you have control over that. You have some control, you don't have full control. It's not really clear how that works either. Okay. What we are now going to do, not now today, but now tomorrow, um, is we are going to figure out exactly what are the criteria to define you as a Russia. Because right now, I think I'm motivated by both. Sometimes I want to do good things. Okay. So my goal for today, God willing, is, sorry, for tomorrow, is that we finish that, and that should hopefully more or less take us to the end of what I call unit one, and then we can start unit two on 
Wednesday. So she needs to be with the help of God Wednesday morning and have sheets for that. What's the next two chunks? Yeah, that's what I would like to get through. I mean, if we if if we go slower than I anticipate, that's fine. Are we gonna do? Because I just added no, the questions while these resources were in the specific order. Mm-hmm. I want. I didn't. I couldn't figure it out. I really want to know. Are we gonna do that or? Um, you can ask me tomorrow before class. Not everything I mentioned the questions are gonna be covered.